Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, uh, which, by the way, is, is much more than just a daily report. It, it really is a knowledge platform uh, from which we communicate uh, thought leadership on various strategic topics, uh, yes, through our, our reports, but also these podcasts, as well as webinars, and hopefully in the future, some live events. And for these podcasts, which so far have been a conversation between me and our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, who also, by the way, is a professor at FIT and Syracuse University, um, we decided that from time to time, depending on our topic, uh, we would invite an expert to join us. And <laughs> expert would be a huge understatement to introduce Jan Niffen. And for most leaders in and around the world of retail, retail he would need no introduction. Um, as former uh, SVP of the May Company, overseeing the financial operations of its vast number of department stores, today he is a renowned consultant and a weekly contributor as a thought leader on CNBC, and I must say that his intelligence and knowledge really span across the economy in general and all consumer-facing businesses, for that matter. And you can't miss Jan in a crowd. All you have to do is spot his signature black derby hat, which he wears at all times. Well, probably not when he's sleeping. Anyway, Jan, thank you so much for joining Shelley and I today, and we are very eager uh, to pick your brain about a major point you emailed to me. It was, it was very provocative. So uh, to get started, um, I would like you to repeat what you sent to me in the email for our listeners. Well, first, I'd like to say to Robin and Shelley, thanks. I didn't know I was your first expert on this webcast. And I'm really thrilled that you called me an expert. So, you know, this is great. Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. So the point I was making is there's not so much now a problem with the supply chain or with the production of apparel, home goods, or even computer chips. Production is well over pre-COVID levels. U.S. industrial output is above pre-COVID levels. Sales of S&P 500 companies is a, are above pre-COVID levels. Retail sales are 23.5% or so, but who's counting, above pre-COVID levels. And U.S. imports are above pre-COVID levels, despite the fact that there's 121 ships out on the ocean. So the only variable that's really changed, it's demand. Demand has surged. It's out of control, and nothing in the supply chain is able to cope with it. This is a COVID-induced, government-fueled issue. It's no longer the real supply chain issue because of factories being shut or the ports being closed. The M2 money supply is the largest it has ever been. It has grown faster than it has ever grown. And I remember how we stopped this problem the last time in 1982. Paul Volcker shut down my leasing business by pushing short-term interest rates to 20 plus percent. I bought a house with a 12 and three quarter percent mortgage and thought I'd gotten a good deal. I got rich buying collectible cars, real estate, art, scarce, hard assets. 
So I think that uh, what you're saying is that what Volkner did back to break inflation in the late 70s, um, you're saying that if the Fed does this kind of similar major act of raising interest rates to break inflation that we're experiencing now, that supply and demand will return to some kind of equilibrium? Or will we return to where we were when we had way too much supply, too many stores, too much stuff? Yeah, well, the problem with that 1970s scenario is that if Chair Powell does what Volcker did, we have a revolution. And I don't mean wow. a revolution in retail. I mean a revolution in America. A sharp recession to ring out inflation is, in my opinion, no longer an option. So the Fed will need to be very, very careful in its response to inflation. The Fed's finally come around to recognizing that a big part of the 7% inflation rate we've seen for the past couple of months is now embedded. And the Fed's still not sure how much of the 7% is the classic too much money chasing too few goods. And that part of the inflation can ameliorate a bit as we get the supply chain catching up if that's really what's going on. But, you know, we seem to be heading to a two-handle on unemployment because the economy is still ripping and the labor participation rate's not rising in response to the rising wages. Hence, the 10 million unfilled jobs and all the wage pressure we're seeing, especially in retail and in restaurants, all of the low-wage industries. We thought that as the government's support to stave off the effects of the COVID shutdown was withdrawn, labor participation rate would rise. Not happening so far. Will we get back to too much stuff and too many stores and too much discounting in the system? Surely we will at some point. And the too many stores issue has been with us for years and it has not and is not going away rapidly. I still contend that during the pandemic, 50,000 stores closed that we didn't really count because they weren't owned by major companies, public companies. They were just mom and pops and they're gone, along with the 200,000 mom and pop restaurants that just went away during the pandemic. They're unlikely to come back online anytime this decade. But we still have too many stores and too many shopping centers by a lot as we head to 50% of all non-bar, non-restaurant sales being online versus the 21% that we're currently running. Yeah, you know, certainly, certainly the drive to online, um, uh, Jan, has been accelerated by the pandemic. But Jan, I mean, come on, the supply chain issues have been plaguing us uh, for a year and a half, regardless of the channel of distribution. We saw you know, the backed up ports, we read and heard about the need for 80,000 truckers and workers getting the virus. All of this had to add to the lack of supply. I mean, come on. I mean, truckers, truckers to get gas to gas stations, <laughs> turkeys to supermarkets, this had to be a contributor to inflation. So it doesn't matter that production and imports are above pre-COVID levels. What good is it if the stuff can't get to the stores? All right. I agree wholeheartedly <laughs> with that issue. The trucker shortage, if it's 80,000 truckers, is not going to get fixed until we get self-driving vehicles, which we will eventually. But the virus issue is quickly resolving itself, the Omicron variant notwithstanding. 
The container shortage is also quickly resolving itself with container production now at all-time highs and the containers stuck in the wrong place issue is starting to resolve itself as well. And we'll see that the too many boats on the water issue resolves itself in the first half of 2022. And it probably won't reappear as the revenge of things morphs into the revenge of experiences as COVID becomes just another of the hundreds of coronaviruses circulating as it learns to live among us and we learn to live with it. Humanity and the flu may not love each other, but we've learned to cohabitate. While we in the common cold coronavirus practically live in a love-hate relationship. Yeah, Jan, I think the annual flu vaccine and COVID will just become mainstream going forward. But I'd really like to circle back to get your perspective on supply chain from something you had said earlier on. And that is, you know, I understand the issue with demand and the unanticipated spikes across categories. But there are many companies and many CEOs that I've heard talk about other issues related to supply chain beyond demand. You know, factories shutting down without notice, workers getting sick, government mandates about social distancing. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, even through this year, when Vietnam factories shut down in August, for example, uh, July and August, you know, the long term effects by many analysts say that they are worse than expected for apparel and footwear uh, retailers Mm -hmm. in particular, you know, Nike, Adidas, Lululemon come to mind, you know, and on the quarter three earning calls for both Nike and Adidas, the impact of significant was significant for product production and distribution. So the shutting of factories seems to be an ongoing issue throughout the pandemic, which has had a major impact on supply chains. So can you give us your view kind of on this domino effect when this happens? Well, yeah, I mean, early on in the pandemic, the factory shutdowns and port shutdowns were a total nightmare. And with China reacting so dramatically to any case of Omicron showing up within their borders, that issue may reemerge as the last gasp of COVID's attempt to wreck everything. But in the beginning, the real issue that when COVID hit, the real issue was that all the retailers freaked out and canceled their orders and didn't reorder. Why? Because they never knew when they were going to be reopening again. So even if the factories hadn't shut down, they'd have stayed open, there'd still have been no orders to come across the ocean. So when the world started to reopen, what happened? Orders resurged because everyone was clearly under inventory. The stores were basically empty. No one knew when they might be able to be reopened, so they just hadn't ordered stuff. That caused all the containers to surge this way to the U.S. at the same time, the same time that many ships had been mothballed and there was no demand in China. Mm-hmm. So no containers were needed for the return trip. No one wants to carry them back empty. Once things started to normalize as far as factories reopening, orders coming in, containers being available, and ships coming out of mothballs, we had the government set the economy on fire by putting more money in people's hands in a shorter time period than ever in history. Ta-da! Too much money chasing too few goods. Welcome to the present. So now here we are. No one in retail had confidence in their view that the consumer would be great and return in numbers to the stores and ordering online. So they order underordered in 2020, and they were still underordering in early 2021 because they didn't want to get caught with excess inventory. They hadn't anticipated the real strength of the consumer, and they hadn't anticipated how much all that money flowing into the system would create the revenge of things going forward. So we've been playing catch up ever since on top of all the supply chain issues we just talked about. 
et voila, what do we get? Record inflation this century, record gross margins this century, record sales this century. And yet everyone is still tearing their hair out because of all the added costs in the supply chain and in costs in labor, as well as labor shortages that every retailer tells you about every day and product delays. That's all yeah. happening, but it's driven mostly by the demand and the underordering in the early part of the process. Yeah, you know, Jan, you know, it's better than I do. Retail sales have been strong overall this year. And I know we don't, we don't have December sales yet, but uh, can you give us maybe a high-level category breakdown of categories or segments that, that have surged and of those that have not surged throughout uh, this past year? Well, I can tell you what I think happened in Q4, November, and December. Apparel was up 47%. Jewelry was up 32%. Department stores, God love them, were up 21%, what there is left of them. And electronics are up 16%, and they were good last year. And it's important to know that gift cards set a new record up 43%. And we don't count those wow. in sales. They don't get Amazing. counted until you actually redeem the card. So January can't really fall apart because those cards get redeemed in the first 60 days. Nothing really struggled out there, though, because there was a little bit of a shift out of athletic, athleisure, and home and do-it-yourself. But everything in general was so good. It was just an extraordinary year. So it was better if you were selling jewelry and apparel, things like that, as far as year-over-year growth. But even the things that were decent last year had good year-over-year growth because we just had the consumer spending so freely. And there was no resistance to price and people were perfectly willing to substitute, therefore buying something they didn't really want at more than they would have paid for what they wanted. Think about it. Wow. And those are extraordinary numbers. I mean, <laughs> really is kind of surprising. Um, so perhaps you can talk about the shift of uh, consumer demand across categories and how that has also impacted uh, the, the current economic condition uh, that we're in today. And, and on more of a macro level, um, do you think the economy might slip into uh, stagflation? I, I, and maybe ultimately end in recession. I know unemployment is low and consumer demand, of course, is booming, but could that change? Well, you know, just proving I'm not always right. I thought we would see experiential retail coming back in the fourth quarter, and that would have some impact on things. But COVID didn't recede in the fourth quarter. And so nothing changed much as far as what the consumer was willing to spend on. So experiential spending did not come back. We weren't traveling all that much. Mm. We weren't doing the things that experiences because you have to get together with people to have experiences. What we did see was a huge resurgence in apparel, accessories, shoes, and jewelry. The traditional things that you always expect to see in the fourth quarter. And they were, as you just saw, fabulous. And gift giving was fabulous. Gift giving has never been as good. And I also told you, neither have gift cards ever been as good. So eventually that shift into things of like apparel, accessories, and shoes instead of home, et cetera, that has to come out of the cocooning eventually. 
because so we're going to finally reduce the surge we've seen in home goods and DIY purchases and electronics for home offices and homeschooling and athletic goods, all of which surged during the pandemic. But the consumer was so strong in fourth Q that, that traditional products, they didn't suppress the sales of those other things I just mentioned. They weren't as good as what we saw in accessories, pearl and jewelry, but they were still good. So by the same token, it almost seems certain that 2022 has to see the shift here experiential and away from the revenge of things that should have started already, but it hasn't started still yet. And so we're probably good till the first half at least of 20, until we get to the back half of 2022 before we see experiences starting to maybe cut into other things but that should still contribute to apparel and accessories and jewelry because if you're going to go stuff places and experience things and travel, you still need traditional clothes. So, you know, Omicron stalled things out. So we're probably pushing that experience thing to mid-year. But with unemployment now under 4% and heading to 2 3% maybe, down to maybe under 2 above 2%, but under 3%, and the M2 money supply surging and a hesitant to act Federal Reserve, 2022 could also see record consumer spending. So we might be able to have the revenge of experiential and revenge of things at the same time. Now, probably the only person on here besides me that remembers this, because um, most of you don't remember when we had, Robin <laughs> probably remembers this. Oh, yeah. But the rest of you don't remember when we had money for both guns and butter. But that ignited the inflation of the 70s. And it seems that we may continue to see the roaring inflation fire that has just started continue to burn brightly in 2022 and probably beyond. It'll take longer than that to slow this down. So what will the eventual outcome be? Well, eventually you have to see a slowing of growth and probably an actual recession to control inflation. And there's always a recession on the horizon. Sometimes we can push it out. Sometimes we can pull it forward by the actions of the Fed and fiscal actions of Congress. But there's always one coming and we will get one this time. That's really interesting, Jan. Um, so you had mentioned earlier in your opener that the U.S. market industrial output is actually above pre-COVID levels and production is well over pre-COVID levels. U.S. imports are also over pre-COVID levels. So the trade deficit has been the highest it's ever been in some months of 2021. And in others, the gap is really narrowed. So will a declining deficit aid in the U.S. economic recovery, in your opinion? God, I hope we don't see a big decline in the deficit because really bad things will be happening if we do. But I can't see a scenario where we have any sustained period of trade deficit reduction. When we see a temporary one, it's just a fluke. Mm. We're not going to see the U.S. consumer pull back on goods. We never have, and they're not going to this time. And we're not going to see enough onshoring of the production of goods for a sustained trade deficit reduction in my lifetime or Robin's lifetime. Maybe yours, Shelley, not the rest. <laughs> Thanks, Jan. <laughs> Anytime, Robin. So... According to um, the Fed's, uh, the money, the M2 money supply in the U.S. increased from 15.5 trillion in February 2020 to 18.96 trillion in November 2020. Uh, this significant increase is 
I don't know, likely a result of the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing in response to the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic. In February 2021, M2 money supply was $19.66 trillion, and in November 2021, it grew to $21.44 trillion. So it's up 14% this year alone and up 38% compared to February 2020. And as you said earlier, Jan, the, the M2 money supply is the largest it has ever been. Um, according to the Federal Reserve from February of this year, as compared to November, currency is up 5.9%, demand deposits up 33%, and other liquid assets are up 6%. So, Jan, can you uh, break this down for us and, and, and tell us about the impact on the economy? And for our listeners, um, you know, the short-term and long-term impact for our, in- for our industry. I think, that, Robin, the only statistic you left out there was that we also saw record savings rate and $2 trillion of excess savings that's in the pocket of the consumer okay. right now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I'm not an economist. Okay, I only play one on television, but I do spend a lot of time working with Evercore ISI, who I personally believe is the best retail econometric firm in the country. No, they're the best in the world. And I think I've worked with them since the 80s. So yes, I'm extraordinarily concerned about the huge blast of money that has been created in response to the pandemic and what impact it will have on retailers and the consumer. Clearly, we had to take action in the face of events that we hadn't seen since 1918 flu. But once the genie of growth and the money supply and the raging inflation are out of the bottle, even the Fed can't put it back in the bottle without crushing the economy into recession unless they are very, very good and very, very lucky. And so far, we have not seen that done successfully very many times. As a matter of fact, I don't think we ever have. But in the simplest terms, inflation peaked at 13.5% in 1980. That was preceded by 11.25% in 79 followed by 10 and a third percent in 91. But the 5% inflation year started in the early 70s, and then they accelerated to 6%, and then they accelerated to 7% in the late 70s. And before hitting those peaks, you know, they were already running pretty strong numbers like we're running now. And then it just started to accelerate. And that's when we hit those double-digit numbers. And that's yeah. when Paul Volcker hit the brakes, 1979 kept his foot on the brake in 1980 and threw the country into a severe recession. But he broke back in inflation forever, if forever happens to be 2021. Short-term rates hit 20%, 30-year mortgages hit 16%. I issued a 16 and two-thirds percent 30-year bond. We actually paid it all back. Oh, and uh, the M2 money supply growth has been less than half of what we just saw back in those days. So, you know, we're, we're roaring along to where we could have really significant inflation looking like late 70s, late early 80s, as opposed to the mid 70s, which is what it looks like right now. So what are the long-term impacts on retailing? Well, hey, it'll be none for the big, well-capitalized, strong, essential retailers who are still around after the recession, but that's all that'll be around after the recession. 
because there'll be fewer competitors, fewer vendors, fewer malls, and fewer landlords. Oh, boy. You know, Jan, (laughs) this is a startling picture that you painted for us today, Um, but I think also very timely. Everybody's talking about it now, and things seem to be getting worse rather than better, and I think you've given us a lot of insight as to why all this is happening. Um, We're going to have to wrap it up here, but Jan, I just, again, want to thank you so much. As always, you connect the dots for everybody on so many levels. Indeed, you are a great thought leader in this industry. And I'm sure I speak for our listeners when I say we really learned a lot today. So thanks again, Jan. Well, thank you so much. It was great being here, even if gas prices are up 30% year over year and pound of beef cost you 18% more than it did last year. So great to have you with us today, Jan. And so again, like Robin says, insightful for our listeners. Um, For our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Sprout, and therobinreport.com. And please follow us on social media, link in with us, and follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry. And I'll close it up by saying to all of our listeners, you can find more of our provocative insights on therobinreport.com. And as I say every Friday, if you guys, any of you have uh, topics, uh, you know, ruminating in your brain, <laughs> you want Shelly and I to take take the take it on for one of our conversations, please email me at therobinreport.com. And thanks again. <laughs>